Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, we say goodbye to 2022 with some of our favorite and most joyful stories from this year. The concoction, how did he build that concoction? We'll take a yummy quest to discover how a sizzling hot dish invented here in California made its way to India, the Middle East, England, and back to the Golden State. It felt like a fever dream. How did this dish come to be? And why? And again, how? And we'll meet a Vietnamese pop singer who rode the waves of 1960s music inspired by the California surf sound. Then she disappeared from the music scene. And now at age 77, she's back. I didn't think my mom was cool at all. And uh, now she's like hot. (laughs) I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. This spring, my colleague Aditi Bandlamudi ate a dish that so delighted and confused her that she found herself on a journey to trace its wild origin story. It's a journey that led her across the world and then back to California, to the Bay Area, where she's a reporter at KQED. One night a few months ago, my husband, Shaishav Gandhi, announced that we were going to the South Bay to eat Indian sizzlers for dinner. I figured he had misspoken. Maybe he meant to say samosas or Szechuan food. But no, he meant to say sizzlers. Now, I should probably point out that my husband and I are both Indian, but Sheshav was born and brought up in Mumbai. He moved to the United States about six years ago. I, on the other hand, was born and raised in the U.S. But I grew up eating Indian food. My mom would make dishes from Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat, and Punjab. Growing up here, I knew there would be gaps in my cultural understanding of India, but I never thought food would be a place I would come up short. So we get to the South Bay, Milpitas to be exact, and we enter Milan Sweet Center. It's the small restaurant tucked away in a strip mall of Indian clothing stores and threading salons. And while Milan Sweets is known for their sweets, Janan Gandhi, Sheshav's best friend, said we had to try their sizzlers. I would describe a sizzler as a hot, steamy plate, on top of which you can find uh, all kinds of veggies, rice, even pasta. Okay, I should stop right here and explain exactly what a sizzler is. At its base, there's a bed of grains, whether that's noodles, rice, or pasta. On top of that are grilled vegetables, usually an assortment of onions, bell peppers, sometimes zucchini, and cubes of paneer, all mixed together in a tangy sauce. On top of that, fresh, thinly sliced cabbage and carrots, kind of like coleslaw mix. Finally, some shredded cheese. And it all comes out on the steaming hot platter the whole thing smokes up the room and crackles as it comes towards the table. 
I was overwhelmed as it approached me. The sizzler I got had pasta mixed in a kind of red vodka cream sauce with giant samosas on top of it. It was confusing because I know all of these elements separately, but together, it felt like a fever dream. How did this dish come to be? And why? And again, how? To track down this origin story, I went to the obvious place to start, the internet. I scoured Indian food blogs and articles and was eventually able to piece together a sort of lore that exists around the sizzler. And it starts in California. Sometime in the 1960s, Indian businessman Firoz Irani was on a trip in California, not exactly sure where, when he visited a Sizzler steakhouse. Remember those? Sizzler brings the choices that you've been looking for. At that time, Sizzler steakhouses were known for serving their steak on a sizzling platter that smoked up the whole room and made a big scene. Irani saw this and was entranced. He came back to Mumbai and went to work creating his version of a sizzler. A few years later, in 1967, he opened up the Sizzler restaurant in a ritzy part of the city and sold allegedly the first Indian sizzler. Grilled meat or vegetables on top of a bed of rice or pasta, or both, mixed in a special sauce and served on a steaming hot platter. According to legend, after Irani opened the Sizzler in Mumbai, his son Shahrukh eventually took over the business and opened another restaurant in India. From there, other families took the idea and ran with it. The two largest, most famous restaurant chains are Yoko Sizzlers and Kobe Sizzlers. Food blogger Indrajit Lahiri, based out of Kolkata, says part of what made the Sizzler so popular is its shosha, or showiness. Going to restaurants for a dine-out was not really very popular like what it is today. And my father used to take me to all these fancy joints. I'm sure it was ordered to for some other table and with that shusha and that visual appeal, I asked my father that, boss, what is this? And I want one of that. According to my husband Shaishav and our friend Janan, the dish really took off in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yoko and Kobe Sizzler chains had spread throughout India, and around that time, the Indian middle class was growing, and more people could afford to eat at restaurants. Sizzlers were still considered a luxury food at the time. Shaishav remembers eating his first Sizzler at a rich friend's birthday party. It's kind of not food that you have, like, if you're, like, normal middle class. It's, like, very upscale. And Yoko Sizzler is kind of like upscale. So he had a birthday party and they had like sectioned off a part of the restaurant. His like dad had this like DSLR camera and stuff. So so for that time, it's like he was like obviously like well off. (laughs) Eventually, the Sizzler gained international popularity as Indians immigrated to other countries and brought their food with them. I talked to Ryan Rizvi, who manages the Yoko Sizzler restaurants in the Middle East. He's based out of Dubai and has been tinkering with the Sizzler recipe to fit the local palate. Uh, we have a lot of local Arab customers that are coming in, you know, so we have to customize our taste according to them as well. Because if you have our original sauces in India, they would be a little more spicy than what we have here in Dubai. This alleged history explains why someone like me, who was born in the U.S., wouldn't know about Sizzlers, while Shaishiv and Janan grew up eating them. When my parents immigrated in the late 80s, they didn't know about the Sizzler because it wasn't popular enough. But in areas with a lot of recent Indian immigrants, like Edison, New Jersey, Detroit, 
Dallas, the San Francisco Bay Area, you can find Sizzler joints all over the place. I did reach out to Sizzler USA, the company behind the steakhouse chain, to see if they knew about any of this. Forbes Collins, the company's historian, said Sizzler was aware Indian restaurants were selling something called the Sizzler. But when I described the dish Firoz Irani created in the 1960s... The concoction, how did he build that concoction? I mean, he must have, he must have gotten the idea of the Sizzler platter from us, right? But it wasn't just the platter Collins took issue with. He says Sizzler USA had a run-in with a restaurant in Florida. In Orlando, I saw a restaurant named the Sizzler Indian Cuisine. We weren't happy they were using our name, and we tried to stop. The marketing department got involved. I wasn't involved in it. But as far as Collins knows, nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened. I have no idea if it's so that we didn't do anything to them. Milan Sweets, back in Milpitas, that restaurant Jenna and Sheshev and I were at, doesn't mention the word Sizzlers in its name, but it's known Bay Area-wide for them. Here's Sanjay Patel, the owner, describing all their varieties. Chinese sizzlers, um, Hawaiian crispy sizzlers, Manchurian sizzlers, kebab sizzlers, which are made with paneer, uh, grated paneer kebabs. We have alu tiki sizzlers, samosas. Sanjay's dad, Mukund, opened the restaurant in 1996 after moving here from England, where Sanjay was born. Milan Sweets originally served traditional Indian vegetarian food. But Sanjay, an award-winning chef, wanted to try something a little different. So I had a lot of excitement inside me. I've got this new country that is fresh to new ideas. Once he got to the U.S., he started working on the Sizzler. And to sell the idea to an Indian-American audience, the Sizzler would have to adapt. Indian people love ketchup on everything that they eat. I kind of like studied broke down what a ketchup is to try and create a sauce that has that tanginess that I can add some cream to so that it creates a sauce that's similar to a vodka sauce or at least a creamy marinara sauce. That's what he tosses his pasta in, which serves as the base layer for his samosa sizzler. Let's do the samosa sizzler and the um, Hawaiian crispy. And the verdict? Mmm. You like it? It's so, like, sensory overload sometimes. <laughs> Approaching this thing is a bit of a task. I found taking a little bit of pasta and breaking up the samosa was the easiest way to go. It has this sort of, like, creamy yeah. sauce to it. It's, like, really good. Since having my first sizzler, I find myself craving it on the regular. There's something poetic about it, too, how the idea traveled from California to India all the way across the world, to the Middle East, to England, and back to California. You taste familiar ingredients paired together in an unfamiliar way, and the result is unexpectedly harmonious. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If only we as humans could just do as the Sizzler does, complement each other's cultures and embrace the contradictions. For the California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, still eating that sizzler.
And if the sizzler isn't enough to bring a little joy into your life, how about some music inspired by the California surf sound in Vietnamese? This song is called Hu, and it's from back in 1966. The singer is a woman named Phuong Tham. Music critics at the time called this kind of music action music. It was nothing like the folk opera or the French jazz that Vietnamese listeners were used to hearing. Phuong Tham's singing career peaked from 1964 to 1966. And then she disappeared from the music scene for more than 50 years. Oh, because I have to take care of the kid, you know. She became a doctor's wife living in suburban San Jose. It was always cooking, cleaning, going to work, um, disciplining us, uh, making sure that we were well-behaved. That's Fung Thumb's daughter, Hannah. She's the one who pushed her mom at 77 years old to reclaim her crown as Vietnam's first rock and roll queen. I didn't think my mom was cool at all. And uh, now she's like hot. (laughs) In one of our favorite stories from 2022, reporter Christine Nguyen takes us back to when Fung Tham first discovered the music that would spark her career. A fortune teller said she'd be famous one day. But at 14, Nguyen Thi Tham, or Tham, was a mediocre student. But she didn't care. She had music. My house, uh, we have only one radio. Anyway, now we're going back to Richard Dimbleby in London. And my dad, uh, every day, he listened to news from BBC. And I want to listen music. Since her dad hogged the radio, Thumb wandered the noisy village courtyard. One neighbor's radio played American pop. Thumb didn't understand the lyrics, but she loved 50s hits like Lipstick on Your Collar by Connie Francis. In 1961, at 16, Thumb entered a singing competition for Duan Văn Nghệ Vietnam, the Vietnam Culture and Arts Union. The group performed anti-communist live entertainment for military personnel. It was good money, but eventually Dum ditched the propaganda music and high school too. She found mentors who shared her love of Western music. One renamed her Phuong Tham. It was more lyrical and meant the direction of the heart. And with that name change, her sound morphed. That's Remember the Night from 1964. Thumb had an admirer officer who followed her as she hopped from Tansanyat Air Base to Saigon nightclubs like the Paramount and the Olympia. 
he loved it when Thumb sang this one Nat King Cole song. He said it reminded him of her enticing lips. The song is um, tenderly, the last word is, uh, you took my lips. You took, took my, love. my love so tenderly. One night, the officer brought along a young new military doctor. November, November 63. Lúc đó là đảo chánh nó giống như là ông... She says it was November 1963, the same month Vietnam's president, Ngo Dinh Diệm, was assassinated. After her set, Zhu, the young doctor, asked for her address. Tenderly, then became their song. So tenderly. Their marriage, almost three years later, between a singer and the son of an elite family, was scandalous. Their parents didn't come to their wedding. Oh, they they don't accept me. They don't accept me. But I'm already in love. Yeah. Thumb says it didn't matter. Her daughter Hannah says they were in love. But before she became a wife, Thumb became a star. The major Saigon labels recorded her songs. Here's Still Loving You Always from 1965. She headlined the nightclub circuit, and she collaborated with famous composers and musicians. It was rare to see women singing Western-style music. And in spite of, or because of, the subversiveness of her music, Phương Tâm kept her clothing modest. At night, I always wear outside. I always wear white or beige, not bright. The Aozai was the wispy national dress of Vietnam, made famous by pictures of schoolgirls. But Phương Tâm wasn't your average schoolgirl. In a music review, famed Vietnamese writer Mai Tao wrote about the simmering power of this modestly dressed teen. As she steps from the back and moves toward the microphone with glittering eyes, her hands clap into the beat, a new shape emerges. The figure is now drawn with burning flames, like a green fruit ripening before your eyes. But as quickly as she ascended to fame, after 1966, Phương Tâm left her singing career without a goodbye tour or a last interview. The war got worse, and she had three kids. Her oldest, Hannah, remembers hiding from bombs. The rockets would go, the sirens. So whenever we would hear the sirens, we would go into the bunker. With the fall of Saigon in 1975, the family evacuated on a cargo plane. They eventually arrived in Southern California. There, them found work, mostly random, repetitive piecework for the garment industry. One week, I, I have $60. Meanwhile, her husband studied to requalify to practice medicine. Life revolved around the kids and eventually supporting Zoo's successful pediatrics practice in San Jose. It was always cooking, cleaning, going to work, um, disciplining us, uh, making sure that we were well-behaved. Hannah is a doctor like her dad. In fact, all three of them's children became doctors. 
Although the kids weren't particularly musical, their parents stayed in love with music. Here at Thumb and Zoo, at a music lounge in Little Saigon in Westminster. Thumb's past life as a singer was like an open secret. She didn't deny it, but she stuck to singing other people's hits, not her own. When her husband Googled her, he found YouTube videos of other women claiming to be Phuong Thumb. He would show her a video almost like, Trời ơi, con gì mình làm cái gì? Uh, what? Look at this. Whoever put this video up and use your name. Then in 2019, Thumb's husband died after a prolonged illness. My mom and my dad were always a couple. Wherever they went over to their friend's house, it was never without the other. His death was a turning point for Hannah and Thumb. Hannah went searching for more information about her mom's past life. She stumbled across compilations of Vietnamese wartime rock music, including the most successful album to date, called Saigon Rock and Soul. The album included a Phuong Thum song, Magical Night, only it wasn't really her. It was a cover by another singer named Connie Kim. Is this you on the cover smoking? And she said, oh, they are liar. I never smoke. Hannah kept finding more fake Phuong Thum YouTube videos. It was Phuong uh, Tham, but someone else's picture, someone else's voice, singing her songs. And she got upset. And she asked me, can you change it? And I said, no, the only way to change it is we have to do it ourselves. Hannah's idea was to make her own compilation of real Phuong Tham songs, a mix of whatever old versions she could find and maybe upload it to YouTube. But with the help of a producer and his connections around the world, she ended up with something more ambitious. They found rare original records and reel-to-reel tapes, repaired the tracks, and created a studio-quality album. And two years later, we have have an album. Dreamy Love, first recorded in 1965 and now restored on the album Magical Nights. The process brought mother and daughter closer together. I didn't think my mom was cool at all. And uh, now she's, like, hot. (laughs) And it helped them reclaim her identity, separate from one, as a wife and a mother. First time Thumb heard the newly restored songs like Bygone Twisted Days from 1965, 
them cried. She hadn't heard some of these songs for over 50 years and had almost forgotten about them. But when Hannah found them, them remembered. She remembered who played the keyboard, who played the guitar. She remembered the camaraderie of early morning meals after a night singing. She wished her husband, Zhu, who had been with her at the peak of her career, could have heard them again, too. Hello. Hi. Them still sings. I caught up with her on New Year's Day when she performed at a neighbor's house in San Jose. The guests eat it up. One man tells me the music takes him back to his childhood, before the worst of the Vietnam War. This is Do You Remember from 1965. <laughs> Documentaries and movies of the Vietnam War often feature American rock music. In fact, on my first flight back to Vietnam after my family fled, I looked out the window to the jungle below. The door song, The End, played in my head. Up to then, Western songs were my cultural reference. But Vietnamese musicians were part of that soundtrack, too. And one of the first was Tham, once known as Phương Tham. She's not a teenager anymore. She's 77 and confident in a spangly top. And she's ready for her victory tour. For The California Report, I'm Christine Nguyen in San Jose. Coming up next week on our show, we're going to bring you some of our favorite conversations from 2022 with authors who draw on their childhood experiences growing up here in the Golden State. We'll hear from Sabah Tahir, who grew up in her family's motel in the Mojave Desert. She says her award-winning young adult novel took a lot of self-love and hope to write. Love and hope for the little kid out in the desert who didn't know how to deal with the difficulties that came her way, but who survived them. And Jaime Cortez, whose collection of short stories draws on his childhood growing up as a queer kid in a Central Coast farmworker camp. So I didn't realize that that was uh, in any ways kind of unusual or out of the norm until I began attending school. And I saw that, oh, okay, most kids don't live like this. Other people have indoor plumbing when they go to the toilet. Uh, other people have telephones in their house. Plus, a conversation with political commentator and humorist Wajahat Ali, who grew up in Fremont. His memoir chronicles almost dying from a heart condition, his parents going to jail. But the book is funny. 
I think humor is important for us to simply have catharsis, to have joy, right? For people of color to have joy. That's coming up next week on our show. Catch it on your public radio station or subscribe to the California Report Magazine's podcast. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. I'm Sasha Coca. Happy holidays, everybody. This is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.